at the end of the day, to, to me, there's no, no greater responsibility and no greater privilege you can have is to represent your own country as a diplomat. It could be an American diplomat or a British diplomat. Most of us would say the same thing. There's no greater honor than that. But to think globally and to work globally is a real privilege. Welcome to the Global Minnesota Podcast, connecting, informing, and engaging Minnesota with the world. Our mission is to advance international understanding and engagement in every corner of the state. We do this with a variety of programs, including our public events, K-12 education programs, great decisions discussion groups, and professional exchanges. To learn more, visit our website at globalminnesota.org. I'm Nicholas Hayen, Marketing and Communications Manager for Global Minnesota. Earlier this year, Global Minnesota had the honor of welcoming the former U.S. Ambassador to Cyprus, Kathleen Doherty, for an in-depth public conversation about the unique situation of this divided Mediterranean island. She provided an excellent summary of the static conflict in the region and what it means for all of us here at home, as well as the wider world abroad. You can catch that recording in one of our previous podcast episodes or on the past events section of our website. So in today's episode, we're bringing back Ambassador Doherty to continue the conversation about her diplomatic career, careers in the Foreign Service, and a behind-the-scenes look at life as an ambassador. So Ambassador, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Nick. I'm looking forward to the conversation. Me too. So could you briefly then summarize just your career and what really inspired you to join the Foreign Service in the first place? Well, I, um, I joined the Foreign Service when I was 27 years old. And actually, the year before, I had taken the Foreign Service test on, on a dare um, from someone um, uh, who I was dating who had taken the test the year before and told me about the test. And I was intrigued by it. But my first question was, how much does it cost? And I was told it was free. So I said, okay, I'll take it. And, you know, the, the Foreign Service test is, is a, a trivia, basically a global trivia test. You have to know a little bit about history, about economics, about uh, global history, politics, architecture, culture. And at each, there's a written test and there's an oral test. And at each stage I passed, but I had no intention of joining the Foreign Service, quite honestly. I, I did it really just as a lark. And yeah. I ended up going to uh, graduate school at the London School of Economics. It was 1989. And I intended to go into international business. But for those historians or those who know their history well, in the fall of 1989 was a very pivotal transformational time in Europe. Uh, it was the fall of the Berlin Wall. And in October of 89, uh, basically, uh, the Soviet Union, um, a, lot of its, a lot of countries got its independence. And I was in the midst of history, and I even had the chance to go to Berlin a few days after the wall opened up. And then I had the chance to go to Hungary and Budapest for a couple of weeks in January of 1990. And I started seeing um, how I wanted to be part of history. I wanted to help make history. I wanted to see history, be an observer of history. And fortuitously, um, the State Department offered me a job as I was graduating, and I was also facing unemployment. And so the combination of wanting to do something impactful and global and being unemployed and having uh, the promise of a government job uh, got me to join the Foreign Service. And uh, I, I had every intention of doing it for a few years and a few years turned into 30. <laughs> so I, I, I say I was very lucky I fell into something, uh, into a career that I ended up loving and being relatively good at. Yeah, that's really funny how you, like you say, you sort of fell into it. I I imagine there's more than a few people who might listen and think, 
man, and I tried so hard and couldn't get through the foreign service test and, and here you breeze through it. But Well, uh, <laughs> well I was an avid reader and, and a lot of people have asked me yeah. over the course of my career, how do you, how do you pass the foreign service test? And I, I was lucky that as a child, I read the New York Times, basically front to cover. Yeah. And I was always reading The Economist magazine. And um, so I, was, I did not have even a master's degree when I passed the foreign service test. Um, I know people have had PhDs and a master's degree and they don't pass it because they're just not as um, well-read generalists. And that's what really the State Department looks for, well-read generalists rather than a singular expert, having a singular expertise. Yeah. And it's it's hard, isn't it? Less than like 1% of people pass. I mean, I I tried it once and didn't make it through. So yeah. it's that's not easy. I hear. I hear it's about, you know, I think historical average is about 20,000 people take it a year and maybe 2,000 pass. Um, and, and then... You get a rank based on your scores, and depending on where you fall on the on the ranking, you get offered a position, or you may not get offered a position. And then you have to go through security clearance. And although one of the questions I often get, do you have to be a U.S. citizen? Yes. Can you be a dual citizen? Yes. Can you be born in a foreign country? Yes. Um, but it, the big the big question is whether how long it takes to get the security clearance process completed. So then after you spent a few years kind of at the lower level, tell us a little bit more about, um, you know, some of these other postings you had prior to becoming ambassador. Yeah. So I, in my first assignment was the Dominican Republic, um, where I processed visas and, uh, uh, I'm a big baseball fan. And if anyone knows, knows anything about baseball, baseball, uh, the Dominican Republic has some of the best group of major league baseball players coming from my country. So I loved having that opportunity to, to meet a lot of the baseball players. And then I served in Brazil after that. And then I was in Washington and um, there again, a lot of luck and being in the right place, right time happened. I was working in the, what we call the economic bureau um, doing kind of investment treaty negotiations. And the and then deputy secretary of state, the number two person at the state department uh, was a person named Stroke Talbot. One of his special advisors uh, went on maternity leave and some for a variety of reasons I was asked to serve for, to take our place for a couple months and a couple months turned into a couple of years. And I had the opportunity to be on the kind of the front line, learning a lot at a, at a, at a pretty early uh, time in my career. Um, this was in 1998 when uh, the embassy said bombings, um, the two embassies in, in Africa were bombed. Um, we started the first emergence of Al Qaeda. Um, a lot was going on in that period of time, 1998 to, to 2000. And I was kind of, I was really just the fly on the wall watching how deliberations were made, but for being at a fly on the wall, well, you get to learn how leaders make decisions. Um, yeah. And, and you know, it was an amazingly uh, uh, a real learning laboratory for me. And then afterwards, um, I was able to go to Rome as my, as my first significant mid-career job. And again, it was one of those things that history um, happens. Uh, first, the thing was the G8 summit in Genoa in 2001, in July 2001. And um, it was the first time we had global protests against the World Bank and IMF and G7. Um, I say the only time I was ever tear gassed happened to be in Genoa, Italy during the G7 protests. And I was an observer. Oh, wow. And then two months later was 9-11. And the world oh. changed under our feet. And... Uh, um, Italy is a, a key ally of the United States and uh, worked with us very closely in a lot of uh, intelligence sharing information, military operations, 
And uh, again, having the opportunity to work in one of our most strategically important country partnerships countries uh, really was a, a great thrill. And then after that, I uh, returned to Washington and worked in our 24 hour crisis center uh, where you are literally monitoring the world's news um, from all different so sources. And I happened to have been on shift uh, on the day of the major tsunami in the Pacific um, on December 26th of 2005. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, again, watching, hearing at 5 a.m. in the morning and calling everyone back at a very senior leadership who had all been on their family holidays for Christmas and they all had to rush back to Washington to, to deal with the major crisis and loss of lives that was happening. Yeah. Um, so then that, you know, again, one thing leads to another and I ended up then going to Moscow. I first spent nine months learning Russian and I must say that uh, uh, nearly bested me. <laughs> um, I, I can learn languages, but Russian was a really tough one. Mm. And um, I had... I say the, the great luck of serving in Russia at a time when we thought at some point we might have good relations. <laughs> um, the trajectory wasn't as adversarial as it became. This was 2005 to 2008. Um, and a lot of US investment was booming. There was a lot of, um, I, wonder, I don't wanna say pure optimism, but there was some hope that US and Russia would find a, a, some kind of stable working relationship where we would compete with each other as necessary, uh, but we would also be uh, more collaborative in the partnership. So I was spoiled. Um, I had a time, a time and place in history where I think my predecessors and my successors did not have that same kind of relationship. Yeah, and then not, quickly, not unlike what we considered the U.S.-China relationship would be exactly. back in the there, day as well, yeah. Right, there are many people who can point to that they happen to be at a really good crossroads of history rather than when the crossroads led to a different direction. And then just fast forward very quickly, I served in London after that, during the 2008 economic crisis um, meltdown. And um, again, being an eyewitness to history, seeing how the very senior leadership of the US government, the Treasury Secretary, the Secretary of State, new president, President Obama, engaged on these global economic issues was, was a great learning experience and being part of it. And then I went back to Washington and um, headed our European Union office and then uh, kind of handled all matters dealing with Western Europe for a couple of years. And then returned to Italy as the deputy ambassador, number two on the embassy where it's a 700 person embassy with uh, 22 US government agencies working there. Again, one of our most strategic partners. Yeah. And so there, and then after that, went to, to Cyprus. And that was the culmination of my 30-year career. Um, I returned after Cyprus and spent one year being a dean at our diplomatic institute and then uh, left the State Department and now work for a foundation. So I hope that, that wasn't too boring of an overview of my long and great and very fun career. No, I think that's great. And uh, you clearly have a lot of uh, great experiences to draw on. So I was wondering if you have any of your most like, interesting or inspiring stories from, from your time. You know, I do think people have often asked me, uh, what was my favorite assignment? And uh, emotionally, I always say Italy, because I mean, for, for many people, you can understand why living in a place with the history and the nature and the beauty and the culture. To me, the most, the two most fascinating and challenging places were Moscow and Cyprus. Um, I had, in Moscow, I learned something new every day, sometimes about uh, humanity and geopolitics and 
competition and espionage and, and military competition in ways that were really eye-opening. Um, Cyprus, the obligations and responsibilities of an ambassador are um, profound. I mean, every single day uh, you are not only in charge, you're not only the CEO of a diplomatic mission um, with employees and responsible for their, their physical safety, their, their work environment, feeling fulfilled as professionals, but then you're also the external face of the U.S. government and of the U.S. people. And, uh, and again, that is such a profound moment of being part of it. I think for me, kind of the most important couple, most the most important moments really did come as um, I think one was in Cyprus as we were, uh, as negotiations to reunify the, the country were coming to a head and we thought to a positive result, which was not the end, final result. Being part of the behind the scenes negotiations, talking with, uh, the, the leaders of the of the two sides in Cyprus engaging with other countries, really feeling uh, a sense of historic importance that an individual and a country can really make a difference. Uh, that to me was one of the most fulfilling aspects. There also were just great times of great fun. I mean, I think you know being a diplomat overseas um, is sometimes people say it's glamorous, and um, and if, certainly the places I lived in can be considered more glamorous. Than others, but those were the moments that um, that I remember. It's the moments of just having discussions with the taxi driver, or going to the local coffee shop, or hanging out with some of the kids from whatever country it was. That to me was the best part of the job, um, and uh, not having the the formal parts of it were fun, but the, the informal parts by far, by far, will, the, will be the memories I will carry with me for the rest of my life. Yeah, do you think you get? maybe a bit more of an authentic sense of what people are like when it's in those informal senses. You know, mm -hmm. it's, it's one thing to be at a, um, at, at a formal dinner where everyone is kind of putting on a separate face, but um, you know, behind the scenes, you get to really see what happens within the country and get to really meet the people who, who make the country go around every day. Right. And that's, you know, we're guests. I mean, we're, we're any diplomat in any country is a guest there. And so, um, you know, it's an obligation as a guest is to be respectful of the country and the culture and the people, but it's also, uh, it's part of the obligation is to be a guest and to learn and not to always be uh, in a position of being um, more knowledgeable or trying to be more knowledgeable in the country than the people from the country themselves. They often, I think there is a risk sometimes that Americans come in thinking we know how to solve everything and we don't always listen to the people uh, who are directly impacted by whether it's U.S. policy or global policies. And and again, I said my favorite moments were just hanging out with people, um, running during road. I ran a lot. I did a lot of 10Ks and 5Ks in the island of Cyprus and meeting up with fellow runners. I mean, we were just runners. I was not the U.S. ambassador. I was a runner. And that was just great. Yeah. You touched on it a bit, but then what does a day in the life of ambassador usually look like? I mean, it's not all fancy dinners and uh, and cocktail parties, right? No, no. I mean, usually, in both the case of when I was a deputy ambassador in, in Italy and in, in Cyprus, you know, the, your first role is really to be the CEO of an organization. It's the people who work for you. It's the Americans, and in the case of Cyprus, the Cypriot employees, and in, in Italy, the Italian employees, was to make sure that, A, they're they felt physically safe because it's a dangerous world. And um, so often I would be meeting with my, uh, the various elements of the embassy or tracking security threats. So I would often talk to them. 
uh, I would always talk to the press people in the morning to find out if anything had happened in that country uh, that would be important for the U.S. to know uh, right away in the first thing, because our press people were both Americans and local employees who often read the, who read the language. So they would be reading the Greek or Turkish press in Cyprus, and in Italy it'd be the Italian press. And in the morning we would huddle together and say, "This is what happened overnight." Um, sometimes they'd get directions, um, instructions from Washington to request something from that host government. It could be something as simple as, you know, we're having a, a visitor from Washington from one of the U.S. government agencies, and they want to set up meetings with the host government officials, or we need particular action on whether it's getting uh, Cyprus to support sanctions against Russian oligarchs. And I would often um, go sometimes to the president, often to the foreign minister of these countries, sometimes meeting with parliamentarians to make a case for US policy. Whatever it was, my job was to uh, explain, influence, um, uh, sometimes uh, try to convince, sometimes try to control uh, action by the other country. So I had two, you have two simultaneous hats, the internal facing, uh, motivating a staff, guiding them, teaching them, mentoring them, keeping them safe, keeping their families safe, and the external role of being you know, the key person uh, representing the United States in, in that country. And um, you know, it, it was that complexity, that role is what I loved. I loved having the, du the duality of it, the internal and external part of it. Yeah, and I suppose that was made even more complicated with the situation in Cyprus, where you're, of course, you know, the, the representative to Cyprus, but don't necessarily recognize the Turkish Republic of Northern Cyprus. And so I imagine that complicates the dynamic even more. Yes, many of our morning meetings were uh, designed to discuss how do you navigate that complexity. Uh, if I were to go to the North to do some kind of visit, we would anticipate what the ramifications would be, what the press reaction would be, um, and, and try to anticipate both the positive and adverse reactions in the same in the South. And a lot of it is, is during strategizing. Uh, it's The world of diplomacy is also the world of strategy and communications um, and, uh, and psychology. And <laughs> it's a lot of it goes on. And so a lot of it is, is these day-to-day these -day life of an ambassador is to work with your team and hopefully be inspire your team to think in all those uh, various parallel levels at one time so that we can be as, as effective as possible. And and watching out to avoid anything that might, you know, cause an unfortunate situation. I mean, even yeah. the usage of certain words can cause problems. So you have to navigate that every day. Right. And I to go back to baseball, I did not hit a home run all the time in Cyprus yeah. nor in Italy. There were times yeah. that I made uh, missteps that um that I obviously didn't do deliberately, but um, the perception was a misstep by the host country. And um, that is goes with the job because again, we're, we are guests, we are not, I'm not Italian, I'm not a Cypriot, I'm not a Russian. And there's no way that uh, an American would be able to stand all the, uh, the dimensions of the country. Uh, we do try, uh, the best diplomats try to understand the dimensions, mm -hmm. but we can't always anticipate them. Yeah. So you served as as the deputy chief of mission in Rome, and you where you worked really closely on European politics. Mm -hmm. So I'm kind of curious, what are some of the differences between representing the U.S. in a place like Italy versus in Cyprus? Yeah, so Italy, um, you know, is a member of the G7. It's a member of NATO. Uh, we have five U.S. military installations on Italian bases in Italy. 
So we have a very large U.S. military presence. Um, we also have, as I said, at, at our embassy in, in Italy, we have 22 U.S. government agencies with overseas representatives, everyone from the Department of Agriculture, Department of Commerce, the FBI. We also have uh, three consulates in Italy. I think there's something like 7 million Americans visit Italy every year as tourists. So it's a, it, it was like, I almost felt like I was, um, uh, you know, a, a conductor of you know, 10 different orchestras at one time, you know, dealing everything from a tragic, you know, bus accident where Americans died to some kind of military activity that we were gonna do from a US installation on Italy where we needed Italian's permission, sometimes dealing with parking issues. <laughs> I mean, literally parking fines. I mean, you know, the complexity yeah. was there. Cyprus is a much smaller, um, and I, I should go back, you know, as, as much as ambassadors and deputy ambassadors and US missions have influence in any country, obviously in a country where Italy, like Italy, which is so important, and you have uh, 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 a strategic relationship with many, the Pentagon had direct um, contact with its counterparts in Italy. The, the embassy wasn't as influential, probably as I was as an individual in Cyprus in the smaller countries where uh, the relationship is not as complex, uh, but you have a much more direct impact as an ambassador or as a mission in smaller countries. So for a lot of American diplomats, who want to kind of maximize their individual organizational influence, um, the preference is to do smaller countries because um, you're one of few rather than one of many. Yeah, and that gives you a little bit more leeway to have have a more personal impact mm -hmm. on the policy if you so choose. I mean, right. um, so sometimes it really depends on how much you want to to try to change policy versus if you just want to take the direction from Washington and go from there. Right. I think it would have been uh, very hard for me as an individual or even the ambassador in Italy to change U.S. policy to Italy. It, it's, mm -hmm. There's too many levels of engagement. Um, there's too many very senior level president to prime minister engagement and uh, secretary of state to foreign minister engagement, director. We can certainly explain back to Washington um, how Italians might react to a certain policy objective, but to really change US policy, I think is very hard. Whereas in Cyprus, as I mentioned, when I was in Minnesota, um, in Minneapolis, I and my mission did really change US policy towards Cyprus. Um, we made a series of recommendations and I, I, I believe that, um, you know, history will show for good or for bad, that the recommendations that we adopted uh, under my leadership was was significant and it really changed. And I can't imagine that we could have done that in a larger country. That ability to to enact meaningful change while you're representing the United States, I mean, I, I know it's inspiring for a lot of people. So I'm just wondering what advice would you have for someone who's really curious about a career in the foreign service? Well, you actually use the, the best word I say, you must be curious. Um, yeah. the, the, the most important the skill, and it's not even skill, is curiosity. Uh, if you don't have curiosity, you'll never be effective or you'll be limited in your effectiveness because you won't learn uh, the necessary things to be, to be influential. You won't know how to listen. You won't know how to ask the questions. You won't know how to observe. You won't know why something that seems insignificant to American in a country's history can be so profound in the mindset of people. If you're not curious and you don't ask those questions and you don't want to learn and you don't... I, I was struck sometimes by my colleagues 
who would show up in a country, my peers, having not read enough about that country, have not explored the literature, have not explored the music or the music or the movies. Um, you're never going to understand it as someone who was born in those places, but it, it comes with an obligation. But if you don't have curiosity, I, by far, I think the most important thing is, is curiosity. Curiosity in a very broad sense, because you don't know where you could end up. They could That's right. send you to a lot of different places. Yeah. Yeah. I, um, I actually wanted to stay in Latin America. So, uh, I wanted to really be, uh, make that my career. Um, and people laugh when I said, I was, I was hesitant to take Rome as my, when it was offered to me, because I really wanted to stay in Latin America. And again, I had no complaints. I mean, yeah. <laughs> I, I never, I, I had a, an amazing career and extraordinarily grateful for all that I, that I had, but certainly didn't take me in a place where I never thought I'd end up in Russia. I certainly never thought I'd end up in Cyprus and uh, very grateful for it. It's a career that it's not a career. It's, it's, we always say it's a vocation. And it's not because it is a 24-hour identity. It is your life overseas. Um, and even when times are really tough, and I get that question often from, from students and others, you know, what happens if you disagree with such and such a policy or, and, you know, obviously the news, the contemporary news brings that right to the forefront. And if, what if it's a president you don't like or don't support? At the end of the day, to, to me, there's no, no greater responsibility and no greater privilege you can have is to represent your own country as a diplomat. It could be an American diplomat or a British diplomat. Most of us would say the same thing. There's no greater honor than that. And so um, I hope anyone who listens to this um, would be curious about this profession. And it doesn't have to be with the State Department. It could be with any of the U.S. government agencies. It could be with nonprofits who sometimes, you know, have the same kind of sense of obligation, responsibility. But to think globally and to work globally is a real privilege. Agreed. Well, Ambassador Doherty, thank you so much for joining today and for all your work to represent the U.S. on the world stage. Well, thank you very much. It was a privilege and pleasure to be with you today. And that's all the time we have today. You can catch the full event recording of Ambassador Doherty's discussion at globalminnesota.org. Thanks, as always, to all the members of Global Minnesota who make our programs possible. Be sure to check out our website at globalminnesota.org to find information about upcoming events, learn more about our international programs, and sign up for our weekly newsletters. And don't forget to subscribe to this podcast if you haven't already, so you can hear untold stories of international connections each month and catch recordings of our public events. And if you like these stories that are featured on the Global Minnesota podcast, and you want to continue supporting our mission to advance international understanding and engagement, then please contribute to our year-end fundraising drive. Now you can double the power of your donations from now until December 31st. Thanks to a matching grant from the Anderlich Memorial Fund, your gift will be matched up to $50,000. So become a member today with a tax-deductible donation of any amount. Plus, when you become a member at the $75 level or above, you'll also receive two complimentary vouchers to attend the annual U.S. Foreign Policy Update with Tom Hansen on January 31st. So take advantage of this great opportunity today for your chance to hear from local foreign affairs expert and diplomat Tom Hansen as he discusses the latest foreign policy developments, trends, and challenges facing the U.S. in the year ahead. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you soon.